Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Welcome to Compliance Clarified, the financial services compliance podcast of Thomson Reuters. This is Series 7, Episode 2. And today we'll be talking about some of the top issues compliance professionals in the United States will be facing this year. I'm Randall Mickelson, North American Managing Editor for Regulatory Intelligence, and I'm here with Todd Errett, Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert. Shall we get to it, Todd? Yes, thank you for having me, Randy. You've been writing this annual article on top concerns for compliance professionals for several years now. Uh, What's happening this year that makes the job different? Thank you, Randy. Yes, I think this is the seventh or eighth uh, iteration that I've done uh, kind of a a look forward as to what the top concerns will be this year for compliance professionals. And essentially, kind of look at it from a planning perspective, where are their priorities going to need to be focused or where is their energy going to be spent this year in several key, you know, regulatory related areas, Um, kind of an overview of the, the big picture landscape. One of the stories that's dominated the uh, financial headlines over the last year has been the the cryptocurrency turmoil. Is that having any impact on regulation, on the financial services compliance desk? Um, How does that matter for professionals these days? The cryptocurrency situation is a story in and of itself, you know, from an overall mass public adoption and the frauds and crime and all of the other issues. Generally speaking, most of traditional financial services firms, you know, Wall Street, the big banks and brokerage firms, et cetera, have generally steered clear of cryptos because of the, the regulatory ambiguity around it. Um, however, I think they, by and large, most firms are chomping at the bit to get in, um, you know, it, when they see that the coast is clear. So, so there is you know, call it research and, and, and planning and, you know, development efforts going on at most firms. Um, and I think it's a matter of time before they do get in when there is more legal or regulatory clarity in these areas. So are, are compliance uh, professionals working in conjunction uh, with those development efforts or, or are they sort of waiting? I think it's probably more of a legal and a risk function because, you know, compliance generally, you know, runs the, the day-to-day policies, procedures, oversight, you know, um, et cetera, you know, implementation. And right now, you know, most firms are still, you know, treading very lightly in these areas. So it's, it's really more of a, call it a business planning and development effort at most firms. And like I said, I think they're waiting for the green light from the legal side of the business to, to go ahead and go forward. And then obviously compliance will play a very important role. The general public and lawmakers and politicians and regulators have generally said, well, the banks have done a great job not getting caught up in the contagion in the, the meltdown that has occurred and everything. I look at it slightly different as maybe perhaps hypothetically, if if the banks had been bigger players or more involved, perhaps some of the other meltdown had not would not have occurred maybe you would have had you know some more adult supervision going on and you know you could make that argument um 
I, I think the, you know, the root cause of a lot of the problems is yes, there is underlying fraud and scams, but there, there was a lot of leverage, um, embedded in the system that people were unaware of. Okay. Um, last week, just the, the white house, uh, urged Congress to expand regulators powers, uh, to prevent, uh, misuse of customer assets, mitigate conflicts of interest in, in the cryptocurrency sector. They talked about strengthening penalties for violating illicit finance um, rules and um, addressing the risk of stable coins. Um, but they also sent a warning to Congress, too. They said, don't, don't make our jobs harder and worsen the risk to investors and to the financial system. They, they, they were wary of mainstream institutions jumping in with pension funds. And, and they said it would be a grave mistake to uh, reverse the course and deepen ties between cryptocurrencies and the broader financial system. This seems like a pretty significant warning. How do you read that? I agreed with some aspects of it. I look at these things, you know, somewhat skeptical on the surface is, you know, is there a little bit of damage control, PR control going on here? I think there is a warning there. They're they're happy that the financial system, the traditional financial system was not damaged or did not get tied up in this debacle over the last year. And they're also being protective or providing cover for the regulators. They want the regulators to be able to take the lead here, and they don't want Congress potentially interfering with you know, the regulatory efforts. From a regulatory perspective going forward, at times I'm optimistic that maybe they can do something right. And everybody got excited last year about the Digital Commodities uh, DCCPA. Uh, act that was working its way through Congress, that is essentially dead now because of its close ties to the FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried scandal. So I don't expect anything, frankly, big out of Congress. Um, I think you'll see kind of a continuation of enforcement by the regulators when a fraud is clear. I think there will be one priority that maybe separates itself from the rest of crypto, and that would just be stable coins. Um, stable coins, I think, are uniquely different because of their similarities to money market funds or bank deposits or bank wires or the payments industry in and of itself, where I, I think there's precedent for them to handle those. And I, I call it low-hanging fruit from a regulatory or legal perspective that they can say something that's being marketed as stable, it better be backed, reserved, audited, and actually stable. And uh, I, I think that is one area that may separate itself from the rest of the, the crypto confusion or regulatory you know, mess that's out there. You mentioned enforcement and, um, you know, so far the U.S. Uh, enforcement and regulatory activities relating to crypto have been focused on crypto firms. But with this warning to traditional firms to, to keep their distance, is there a greater enforcement risk to the traditional um you know, financial services industry as the government uh, steps up its scrutiny? I think there is to a certain extent. Um, I think there was a Reuters news story last week that said the SEC is asking questions, whether it's an actual exam sweep or whether it's just being incorporated into regular exams. They're asking investment advisors about custody. Um, how do you custody 
this digital asset. Under SEC rules, investment advisors have to have what they call a qualified custodian, although there's no definition for what qualified really means, or there's not an approved list of them. It's you know generally you know seen as your assets better be kept someplace safe, a known big firm or custodian bank, etc. Or if the advisor itself has custody, there's another level of disclosures and and obligations associated with that. Well, crypto kind of falls somewhere in between. If the advisor is self-custodying and self-hosting wallets, or are the assets sitting on FTX, or are they sitting on you know one of the other big exchanges? Um, I think the SEC is going to ask those questions, and investment advisors who may be involved in this area better be prepared to answer. Excellent. Okay, thank you for that. What are your other big themes? I, I know the uh, SEC is proposing some pretty big changes in how securities market work. And you've, you've pointed that out in your article this year. Yeah, I think uh, market structure is is a big issue. Um, in, in mid-December, the SEC proposed four rules um, related to overall market structure. I think these rules were a direct result of, of the... Um, call it heightened focus that surfaced after the the blow up of the private equity or family office Archegos and also the meme stock frenzy if we go back now almost two years ago where GameStop and some of these other securities spiked and then collapsed and spiked and you had uh, you know investor kind of craziness happening um, where the, the SEC has looked and ask questions, you know, is the market itself, the way securities are traded, bought and sold, orders are routed, is there adequate disclosure? Is there something nefarious going on behind the scenes? The way I look at market structure is it is very complex. However, it is incredibly efficient and the costs to trade in the United States are essentially now commission-free and the spreads are tighter than ever before. And, you know, for a retail investor, they've never had it any better. So what, what would the changes do? Well, the proposed changes are, are four different changes. What, one was, you know, enhance what's known as best execution, which is the verification that the price where a trade is executed is actually at the best available price. Another one, which is a bit probably the most controversial of the four rules, was what they called order competition. And it was going to force all orders to essentially be routed to an exchange or auction type environment. And I think there's going to be big pushback on that because that is potentially very disruptive from either a liquidity perspective and it also could displace some of the large firms that are involved. Another is, you know, reg NMS, minimum pricing increments and fee caps. I don't think that one was too controversial because some of those do need to be updated. Um, The last one and probably the one that's most common sense is enhancing disclosures. And many people that I've spoken to in the industry feel that is really the solution. And what kind of disclosures? What? Well, on, on your trade confirmation. When when you buy 100 shares of or 10 shares of Apple or Microsoft or whatever stock, what was the exact time it was entered? Where did it go? Who executed it? 
and what were all of the fees that were hidden behind the scenes and did you actually get the best price? So the consumer can understand everything that went into that trade. So the consumer can better understand and see that in that order that they routed, um, the broker got paid, you know, two cents or five cents or whatever, somewhere behind the scenes from the venue that it got routed to and got executed from. So, so far, this is just a proposal. And I noticed the uh, Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, one of the big trade groups, uh, put out a, a statement on it that, that stopped short of criticizing, but said the SEC needs to be extremely careful. Don't tilt the playing field at the expense of investors. Uh, you know, they want, they wanted a longer comment period. That, that sounds like pushback in the form of really soft uh, or, you know, subtle pushback that they weren't drawing a line in the sand. But. Yes. And I, th- I think really what they were saying is we welcome this. We welcome more disclosure and some fixes that need to be done. However, let's pause and maybe take a closer look and a study as to this auction or order competition rule, because that has the potential to be incredibly disruptive. So perhaps more study is needed let's not you know, uh, jump ahead of ourselves here and potentially do something that's harmful to the overall structure. Because this structure that is in place today has kind of morphed into this over the last you know, 20 plus years. And frankly, the current structure is of you know, the SECs and the regulators' own making. They, they've let it evolve into what it is. So do you see them revising, especially that auction component? I think that that's the one where there's going to be the biggest debate over. Okay. And maybe stretching out the timeline a bit. Like I said, that's where the biggest opposition is going to be. SEC leadership uh, likes to make quick decisions. They, they don't go for extended comment periods. So we'll see if they rush that through or are forced to take more time. Um, one of the other things you mentioned was increased scrutiny of the private equity industry. Um, what's going on there? They're uh, big players now. I think the way I phrased it is that, you know, private equity or private funds, um, you know, whether it's venture capital or private equity or hedge funds, which some of them kind of do a little bit of everything. Some of them are solely focused in one area or another. I think they have a perennial target on their back to a certain extent um, because of their industry and what they do and how they do it. And frankly, the fees are generally higher than the traditional, you know, finance. They move big money around and, and without a lot of disclosure. And a lot of them make an awful lot of money for themselves in doing it. Mm-hmm. I think the the FTX blow up and the fact that the private equity or venture capital funds helped fund the creation of FTX to the tune of a couple billion dollars um, in private equity money flowed in, and maybe they cut corners or did not perform adequate due diligence. I think that's an area of concern. I think there's also, you know, the Archegos blow up, um, other, you know, private fund problems that surfaced in the last year or two has just increased the overall scrutiny on the industry. 
One of the other root causes and areas, I think, of scrutiny will be the accounting aspect. Last fall, with the downturn in the economy and the financial markets as a whole, you have a very large industry of what they call private REITs, which are real estate investment trusts. These are different than the REITs that are traded on the exchange. These are private pooled investment vehicles that own real estate, actual underlying real estate. They've been sold to loads of retail investors. And you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars that have been invested in these private REITs that are managed and run by private equity firms. The largest one ran into some liquidity problems last year and had to suspend redemptions. In other words, if you wanted to redeem or sell your interest in it, um, sorry, we threw up the gate. You're not allowed to get out. Um, That had to have really ruffled some feathers with the regulators, Mm -hmm. even though it's legal and it was in the fine print of the documents of all these people who purchased these private REITs. when the largest and most well-known private REIT out there threw up the gate on redemptions, I think it just attracted the attention of all the regulators and said, we, we need to look more closely at this area. What are the fees? What are they charging? And more importantly, if you've got a liquidity problem where you can't meet redemptions, it raises the question of, how are you valuing the underlying assets? And are the underlying assets in these funds actually being valued properly? Have you applied a adequate you know, liquidity discount? You know, or if you got the accounting wrong, potentially, um, well, your fees were wrong mm. and you probably overcharged. So it, it could mushroom into something a little bit bigger um, than maybe the attention it's garnered thus far. So, um, you know, the, the private equity funds and their partners and customers, these are all supposed to be really sophisticated investors. Um, shouldn't they know all that from reading the fine print or is there really more regulatory work to do? Um, the answer is yes. Most of it is large, call it institutional money or or high net worth. However, a lot of times those institutional investors, who they actually are, are state teachers and firemen and police uh, pension funds and things like that. Therefore, indirectly, it is, you know, the, the, the mom and pops of America. So the regulators see a public interest in... It's in- institutional money. It's high net worth. It's this, it's that. But, but the assets were the New York State, you know, employees retirement fund. Or, or what have you, and I, I'm not calling them out in particular, but but a, but any general, you know, they they do allocate, you know, generally speaking, most state treasurers' offices or investment offices that run these retirement pension funds give a five to ten or whatever percent allocation to the private equity and venture world as part of their overall investment strategy. And that ends up being a lot of money. So l- let me ask you this, uh, regard to FTX, you know, we, we read anecdotal accounts of them attracting private equity money or hedge fund money from people like Anthony Scaramucci, who's supposedly decided to invest in, d- during a two hour stopover on a cruise ship or a two hour lunch on a cruise ship stopover. Uh, we read about Sequoia, Capital, which wrote off their entire investment in FTX, but but there was an account of them uh, being bedazzled 
by Samuel Bankman Freed because he played video games during the interview they had with him uh, over a remote connection. Is that kind of behavior, as far as you know, endemic in the industry or these, you know, incomplete stories about what may have gone on in those firms? I, I think those are, are somewhat scintillating stories. I know my own experience and, and every experience I ever dealt with, you know, the, the private fund industry, um, the due diligence process was very rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in some cases, it was much more rigid than others. Um, you know, very thorough. Some some firms bring in outside consultants to do all of the due diligence, almost like an audit. Sometimes uh, there are, you know, criminal background checks performed. There's, you know, a verification that's almost akin to a, a big four audit. Um, I think that's the way the majority of, you know, these funds operate. The big question is, what is their disclosures to their own investors? What did they say they do? If they give themselves enough of wiggle room, you know, in their language that, you know, got discretion to act more quickly when needed, we can do due diligence after the fact or what have you. It, it really will come down to what their internal representations and documents and policies and procedures actually say. Um, I think there's a chance that some investors, the limited partners in those private equity funds or venture funds, could have a cause uh, to bring, a, you know, a legal action, a civil action against the manager themselves. In the case of Sequoia, you know, I think they wrote off a couple hundred million dollars um, that they put in, but then they came out and said, you know, it was less than one percent of the assets of the fund. Well. You know, sometimes managers make 1% mistakes all the time. And I think they say they did, in fact, have strict, you know, due diligence procedures, yes. uh, despite the, the anecdote. And I think Scaramucci had said he, he kind of acknowledged he was duped or he said he was duped. Yeah. And I, I think that's another part of the, the discussion is, you know, sometimes frauds are hard to detect. And, you know, if you got duped, you got duped. You know, but but regulators and I think the industry is going to take a closer look at it. And oftentimes it kind of ties into my other area of focus is accounting. You know, if we look at if the private equity industry potentially is not getting accounting right on these private REITs and then they're not doing adequate accounting due diligence in their investment targets, you know, they didn't demand or, or insist on audited financials from a big four or a reputable accounting firm. It raises the question from a regulatory standpoint or just the overall importance of accounting. Yeah, I think you've mentioned that, that uh, one of the first due diligence questions is who, who are the auditors and, and what's in the audit. Yeah. Every due diligence meeting that I ever sat through, the first question asked is, who are your prime brokers? Who's your lawyer? Who's your law firm? And who's your custodian? And who's your auditors? And then who's your day-to-day accounting firm? So, and if they weren't household recognized names, you know, red flags went up. Okay. Good point. Um, Another of your topics has been uh, regulation best interest governing the securities industry. 
the SEC adopted that in 2020. Last year, they charged a California securities firm with violating Reg BI in, in, in how it sold uh, risky, uh, illiquid corporate bonds. Um, is Reg BI entering a new phase now in which, you know, in, in which regulators are cracking down to make sure people are following it? You know, Reg BI was a, a, a significant rule proposal that took years and years and years to, to finally finalize. I think that the SEC and FINRA took a, a gracious window or provided a gracious time frame of well over a year before they really started to crack down on it. Um, it. They gave firms a lot of leeway, a lot of transparency as to how to comply with it. The one component of Reg BI is the form CRS, which is the customer relationship summary. The The first round of enforcements basically dealt with form CRS. Did firms get the form right? And did they actually deliver it? Or some of them just ignored it and didn't even do it. So that's kind of a books and records type oversight. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And, and then the second aspect, which we're now starting to see is the focus on investor protection and call it sales practices. And I think any time where losses or suitability really surface, you know, was an investment sold to a, a retail investor, losses occurred, was it suitable, did the product blow up or whatever it is, essentially could become Reg BI violations. And I think we're, we're on the tip of that um, I think becoming Reg BI will almost be a t- an add-on in enforcements. Um, when anything goes wrong in an enforcement action where, where an advisor or broker lost money for a client or did something, you know, I think it's pretty almost low-hanging fruit for the regulator to say, well, you violated Reg BI. You, you sold them a product or put them in a product that was not in the, in the client's best interest. So yeah. I, I think it's a really easy catch-all that is that's going to become much more common going forward. Yeah, good point. We we had a, a regional SEC director saying that Reg BI is an essential tool for the protection of the best interests of retail investors, and and the director, the SEC director of enforcement said, when when broker dealers fail to act in the best interest of of their customers. Uh, Quote, they put retail investors at risk and will hold them accountable. Um, yeah. it, it's, it seems like that just underscores how retail and investor protection is an overarching theme of the whole Biden administration regulatory approach. It very much is. And, and you know, frankly, it is one of the core tenets of, you know, the SEC and its mandate is investor protection. So I think it's a new rule. I mean, it was implemented in 2020. So now it's almost three years, two and a half years old. But it's now going to become a, a common catch all or a tool for the regulators to, you know, um, you know, go forward and protect investors with. And I would add um, earlier this month, uh, FINRA released its uh exam priorities and observations letter, which is really widely followed and read on, on Wall Street. Yeah. And Reg BI was featured prominently in it. Um, you know, one of the 
call it top three or four categories highlighted. Um, yeah, what what are some of their other categories? Finra, of course, being the major uh, overseer of the broker dealer industry, um, what will they be looking at in their exams this year? The the Finra priorities letter was was very expansive, um, and it seemed to me this year may, that it was much more expansive than prior years. Um, there were I think three or four new areas of focus, you know, completely new. One was back to my accounting emphasis was fixed income, fair pricing. Um, You know, in the fixed income markets, are people getting fair prices? Um, Another was manipulative trading, which I think also goes to the entire question of, of market structure. And another is financial crimes, which I think there's, there's two real catalysts for that. One is, global sanctions and you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all the sanctions that rolled out on on Russia and then also cyber works into that you know the financial crime aspect to cyber so those are kind of the new areas in this year's report um, but in in general it's really all encompassing from firm operations financial management their liquidity to you know big emphasis on market integrity and market structure kind of in in coordination with what the SEC is is talking about then there's you know the whole reg bi communications and sales and disclosures and are you really you know selling good products to the to the public um, and you know then the like i said the financial crimes those are those are kind of your your high level overview of of that. We also saw a couple of technical things in there, more technical, right? The, the treatment of fractional share offerings. Um, there were some problems in re- reporting those orders and, and how they're handled, um, short selling abuses. Anything you can add on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, the emphasis or focus on short selling really stems from, you know, I, and I mentioned it earlier, Archigos and GameStop. Um, was there a short squeeze created? Was there manipulation? Was there more shorts sold than than what actually was available? How how does all of that play out in the marketplace, and is it being done properly? Um, so I think that's that that's really where they're going with that. So after the uh, the, the Finra uh, exam and priority statement, we're still keeping an eye out for the SECs, which has come a little later than it had in previous years. Uh, now under the Gensler administration, but we're we're keeping an eye out for that as well. The one other last kind of outlook that I'd add in just for one second, and I'm not going to talk about it; it's too big of a subject. Was ESG, and I think the environment for ESG has seen a, a little bit of change or shift in the last year. Um, and I would I would cite um, some numbers that just came out. Um, Q4 last year, globally, there were still positive inflows into ESG strategies. However, in the United States, they were negative. There were actual outflows, which with the global energy crisis and, you know, a lot of things happening, there there is some call it heightened scrutiny or, you know, questions being asked about ESG. Have we overshot or have we gone too far? Um, are the are the rules that have been proposed manageable? Um, you know, there's the scope one, scope two, scope three. And the, I'm kind of treading into one of my colleagues' areas of expertise here. 
Um, I, I'm not the expert in ESG, but I think it's going to be a, a, an important theme again this year. And it, it certainly monitors watching. And for, and for compliance professionals, I guess we could say that, you know, you've got state regulators looking at, you know, are they are they discriminating against banks or whatever and coal companies? And, and then you've got the yes. federal and, and international regulators uh, uh, watching for things like greenwashing and so forth. So with, with all this scrutiny, again, that puts compliance uh, and risk control people on, on the spot. It's it's far reaching in a lot of different areas, and you know there there are implications. And you know from a compliance perspective, they need to you know know what the know what the legal landscape is and uh, make sure they're complying with it. And and it's a little bit in in a state of flux right now. Well, Todd, thanks for sharing your outlook on top concerns for compliance professionals this year. I, I'm sure there's a a whole plate full of things that keep keep us all occupied. I'm going to include in this in the podcast notes uh, links to a couple of articles that go into a bit more detail on the issues we discussed. Uh, I would also encourage uh, regulatory intelligence subscribers to check out our Outlook 2023 uh, series uh, of looks into the year we have started. I'll also put in a link on further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence, the, the news and information workflow tool for compliance professionals. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for having me, Randy. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with more from Compliance Clarified. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence.